1: Today is May the 18th, 2018, this is episode 2222, and apparently when I recognized the pattern yesterday, I also thought it was a Friday, so I did get my wish, I have 2222 and 1818 in the same subject line for a show, that weird, I know I like repeating numbers, but anyway, here's what we got on the docket for you today for the Expert Council Q&A show, the monster show of the week that we have every Friday. I have How Horses Fit into Permaculture with Jeff Lawton, Dealing with a Sugar Addiction with Gary Collins, Hosting the audio portion of a podcast with Nicole Awesome Sauce. I have All About Tire Rotation from Charles the Humble Mechanic Sandville, Dealing with hyperuricemia from Dog Bones, which we also know as Gout, Combining Rocket Heaters with Ovens and Dehydrators with Paul Wheaton and Josiah Wallingford, and what plants do best in an ebb and flow versus a wicking bed From me, myself, and I, Jack Spierka? We'll get to all of that in just a moment. Before we do, let's take a look at a year in history. We're up to the year 129 A.D., founding the Panhelion League. Hadrian visits. Who's Hadrian, of course, for your new listener, is the current emperor of Rome in the year 129. Hadrian visits Greece again this year and founds the Panhelion League, The League was intended to recreate the unified Greece from several centuries before uh, during the Greco-Persian Wars. It was mostly a religious organization and different cities in the League began setting down rules for entry and various other rules. The League quickly became a mess as fights between delegates led to nothing getting done and it won't survive Hadrian's death. My take by David Verne. The main problem with the League was it had no practical power. Hadrian wanted to unify Greece but wasn't planning on giving up any imperial power. The only reason Greece had been unified for a few years in the past was to defend against Persian Empire. When an organization doesn't give any benefits, there's very little motivating the members to work hard to keep it going. Indeed. Um, it's also why this is happening. This is an example of somebody with a lot of power who has an affinity for something doing something for no good reason. Hadrian actually is one of the better emperors that Rome has and, and really does a lot of great things for Rome, uh, if, if you're a Roman anyway. Um, but this is one of those things where when a guy can do whatever he wants, sometimes he does stuff that doesn't make any sense because he wants to. Hadrian had this big affinity. He was like an aficionado of ancient Greece. He he really liked the idea of all the things that came from Greece. and Indeed, much of the... Ideals that were the center of the Roman Republic came from Greek ideology. So it's, he's, this is kind of like, I had this guy I used to work with named David, and uh, he was a co-owner in the company that I was employed by, and he had lived a portion of his life when he was a child in Japan. And he had this affinity for everything Japanese. He ate sashimi and sushi like constantly and stuff like that. And if you went to his house, like everything was decorated in, in Japanese. Now imagine hear a guy like that has this affinity for Japanese culture and give him the power of the Emperor of Rome. And you can kind of get carried away with yourself. Here's a, here's a lesson that actually applies to the average person though. We can get too carried away with any hobby, any idea, anything that we bring into our lives. I grew up as a kid. I love snakes. Many of you know that I'm kind of a, an amateur expert, I guess would be the way to put it. I'm certainly an amateur uh, herpetologist, uh, and was specializing mostly in snakes, lizards too, but snakes being the main thing that I, I've you know spent my life learning about, dedicated to developing husbandry techniques, developing breeding techniques, and stuff like that. I currently own those snakes though, because what happened was when I got to the point where um, I realized, hey, you know, you're pretty successful now. If you want snakes, you can have snakes. I had this office at my place in in Arlington, Texas, and it had this huge set of built-in bookshelves. The whole wall was bookshelves. And they were about the perfect size for sterilite containers that snake breeders use for snakes. And I got a snake, and I got another snake, and I got another snake, and eventually I had more than 100 snakes, not counting little snakes that were being hatched in incubators and being bred and trying to be sold off and traded and things like that. And I realized I had letting my hobby become a compulsion, and we have to make sure that we balance our hobbies against being compulsions, or if we're going to have hobbies, it's good that they produce something, and I was never able to make my breeding efforts economically viable, because I have to be weird, and instead of breeding the things that already had a market, I was trying to create new markets, which is you know my other hobby. Um, and so it, dep- it ended up being a point where I was getting like Christmas cards from the guys at Mice on Ice, which is a real website. Uh, and then when I, when I actually got rid of my snakes, they actually sent me a, 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 an email asking me if anything was wrong. Did they lose my business? Right? So I was spending a lot of money on frozen mice and rats and not getting much out of it in return, and it had become work. And But imagine if I didn't have to do the work, if I could point my finger and make somebody else do the work. That's what was going on here with Hadron. Different Way of Looking at History, My Take by Jack Spierko. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, these are questions for expert council members. Remember, the best way to send in an expert council question is if you call it in, I might not forward it. I really, I, a lot of times I don't. Expert council shows, email me, jack at com. TSPC expert in the subject line. Tell me who the question's for and then give me the question in one sentence, hit return a couple times, and then provide details. This is the best way to be clear uh, with the expert so that they know exactly what you're asking and to get past my screening so that actually gets in front of them. Uh, Reminder, real quick, if you want to know all the people on the Expert Council, you can go to thesurvivalpodcast.com. And you can go to the About, and it'll pull down a menu, and you can click on Meet the Expert Council, or in any of the Expert Council uh, shows, there's a list of all their websites, who they are, and a link to the bios on the Expert Council page. With that, Jeff, let's talk about horses and how they fit into permaculture.
2: Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And I have a a question here which involves a lot of... Two questions actually, Um, a lot of details about a property in South West VA, Zone 6B7A, uh, 13 acres. And um, there are a lot of questions about uh, permaculture and horses or our approach to permaculture and horses. So um, the first thing I'd like to introduce here in relation to this is a website called Equine. Permaculture.com. Um One of the main people involved in this is Marietta um, Vandenberg. She's a student of mine and um, she went on to um, write a book called Equine Permaculture and uh, they have an interesting website. Um, they talk about their mission being earth care, people care and horse care. Um, and... Um, united like-minded people um, it's a, um, quite an academic study of how you um, use permaculture design and um, for horse care and um, there's a, sort of an international platform and, and a bit of a movement and um, and how you can put together all kinds of combinations of forages and hedgerows um, and uh, deal with uh, runoff control and erosions on horse properties uh, zone planning for horse properties um, and um, many many things so getting back to our question here and that is um, it's 13 acres and um, there's uh, 4 horses uh, which are on about 10 acres of mixed pasture and and um, uh, Michael wants to know, um, they've seen the the, the quality of the pasture decrease and um, a lot of uh, increase in weeds and undesirable grasses. And uh, they want to start rotational grazing, which is definitely the way to go, and taking the pressure off the pasture um, with the right sort of forage, which uh, is specific um, and a little bit more specific uh, for horses than it is for cows. Um, because horses are, are are a little bit more specific in their in their in their forage requirements, um, and um, um, how and, and really wants to know how long should it take before the grass is grazed down before the animals are rotated off? Um, well, I think everybody is finding the quicker you crash graze, um, and the faster you move the animals the better some friends of mine are doing 450 um, cows moved five times a day with a rotation that doesn't come back for six months and grasses are coming up that only people over 80 years old can remember and even some forage trees that people haven't seen for many generations are coming up um, so it's sort of miracles happen when you do the right thing with your stock um, now you've only got four horses and ten acres and there's probably a limit to how much you can fence but it really is um the quicker you graze it off the faster you can afford to move them and then allowing them to come back once the grass is close to full height but not going quite into full seed um so you, you're compromising there and, and, I'm being completely honest in the way I'm answering you because I don't know your country. I don't know your pasture, but I know the general approach. So you're really looking at as tight as possible. Now horses are, the advantage with horses are they're very easy to fence. So, you, you know, they, 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 don't push fences too hard. So, um, you can, um, have your set up with, now the other question here is, the type of setup, but with long, long setups, you've asked about, you've got steep country, um, should you have square, circle, or th- uh, a longer, thinner area, and better orientate up and down hill or a long contour, and you've been trying longer, thinner idea on contour. Well, you, I think you're exactly on the right track there. The, the advantage is that you're gonna, if you're gonna track out with the, the horses, they're gonna track out on contour, which is much easier to control. Um and less damaging, and then if it's long and thin, then you can electric fence in stages as long as you've got your water points set up. So as usual with stock, a lot of it's about water points. So I would be running my um, laneway up uh, ridge line if I could, um, ideally right up the centre of a ridge line with thinner thinner paddocks on contour with lots of little solar fence or temporary pigtail fences movable fences with small solar um, charge systems and 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 then you could work from one end back um, right through a long contour and do lots and lots of small moves Um, now it just depends how much time you got how much effort you want to put into your horses um, but if you set it up well it really re- does reduce the time and you'll see the recovery come in the pasture because it will go in the opposite direction you'll go towards better and better species more and more diversity coming in if you've got it right um, it might be that you have to do a bit of decompaction first if if it's already a little bit damaged if you can't get on there with a yeoman's plough and deep rip it um, just any chisel plough on contour will help or a spike in aerated drum will help. But if you can't do that, don't worry, because the horses will actually improve the pasture if they're crash-grazed, cell-grazed, the right way. So you'll get a certain amount of imprint in from the hooves, um, and it'll be more in some weather, and, and that will start to actually actually aerate the, the soils, and then manures will all wash into those imprints those hoof imprints, and so will certain seeds and some seeds will come back that haven't been there for a long time so that's definitely the way I'd go about it now you've also asked what's uh, about a sacrifice paddock for holding livestock in wet or muddy conditions um, on your steep country too hard to get them on the ground um, and, and you know they're going to do too much compaction um, ideally I'd be looking at the top of the hill where it's drier, on the ridge line, um, where where you can where you'll also get a nutrient trickle down nutrient from their manure drop. Um, that's kind of ideal. Um, you don't you don't want them on a steep country. Um, you when it's those conditions. Uh, if you haven't got anything like that uphill, then um, ideally again on the ridge line so you you dissipate the runoff. Or um, if, you, if you don't really have that down on the flat, and and I think you're about right on there, about 600 square feet per horse to a thousand square feet. Of course, there's horses and horses. It depends what how big your horses are. <laughs> you know, it can go from you know what 14.2 hands where or 14 hands where a where a um, a pony becomes a horse. And then right up to, you know, huge 17, 18 hen monsters that are big cold-blooded workhorses. So it will depend what sort of ho- horses we're talking about. Um, and I think you'll get a lot of information from the equine permaculture book if you get it, or, or at least a website and you can ask advice there. Um, I, we have Arab stock horse cross, um, and, um, miniature horse for the daughter and um i'm going out riding tomorrow actually and on you know 17 hands large horse um so I, you know i love my horses i think they've got a great part to play um especially in the future it's kind of inevitable we'll be um, back into horses sooner or later more than we are right now in practical sense so um good luck with that i think it'll be uh, a wonderful thing when you get it right and something of value to help other people with
1: Good stuff. Just a quick addition to anybody that's kind of, like, if you're a horse person, you know this. But a lot of times people get into, like, homesteading and stuff, and they just start acquiring things. The compulsion thing from the history segment. And there's one very important thing to understand about horses, anything, equine, donkeys, etc. Dogs and, and horses do not mix unless the dog knows to leave the horse alone. There's dogs that herd cattle. There are not dogs that herd horses. Because if a dog threatens a horse, the horse is going to kill the dog. I mean, that's what's going to happen. So it's not that they can't be in the same place. A dog has to be trained that a horse is not to be attacked, run after, charged, whatever. Because a horse in general will plumb stomp a dog to death. It's not a fair fight, and the dog's going to lose. Just wanted to throw that out there in case anybody's doing the, oh, I'll take one of these and one of those on the new homestead thing. Uh, Next up, let's talk about sugar addiction with Gary Collins from the Primal Power Method.
3: Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of thesimplelifenow.com. Remember, the new website and I'm also in the MSB section. It may still be under Primal Power Method. I need to go check. I'm not sure if Jack has changed that yet. But remember, you get 10% off all your orders. And I always offer free shipping no matter what you order. doesn't matter what the item is. I ship it for free because I roll like that. And remember to get the Simple Life books, RV Living, Guide to RV Living, and Guide to Optimal Health. And the Optimal Health one would be great for, because I answer this, some of these questions in there. With Darren's question about his sugar addiction and being a little bit of skinny fat, this is actually very common in endurance athletes, and that's what Darren is. So this is not too unusual. What usually happens, and I'm I'm going off generalities because I do not know Darren's diet specifically. I just have basic information. So I'm going to go with that. So don't get mad at me and go, God, he's just stereotyping. I'm not. I'm just giving you what I know from from working with, uh, endurance athletes in the past. More than likely, Darren, you're consuming too many carbohydrates or simple carbohydrates, starchy carbohydrates with your meals. That would be giving you that 30 minute kind of all of a sudden want desiring sugary snacks. It, it, and why I mean this is you're having this insulin spike <clears throat> from those overconsumption of carbohydrates simple carbohydrates specifically, usually, it comes crashing down. So usually big bowl of rice, plate of rice with maybe some meat and a little bit of salad. Well, that's going to give you an insulin spike. Then it's going to come crashing down. That's what insulin does when we we eat a lot of simple carbohydrates, starchy carbohydrates. So you crash, and again, like I said, it's a hormonal cascade. Boom, instantly you're hungry again. And you're going to desire more starchy, sugary carbs it's just the way this it works it's a vicious, vicious cycle. Sugar's a drug it works just like heroin in the brain i've talked about this several times it's a rough road, and there's no easy way. It takes twelve to eighteen months to fully cycle, make sure you got it, and then your body kind of adjusts to a more ketogenic ketonic state of burning fat primarily so what's happening is you're burning. Near burning carbohydrates as your main fuel source, which typical Americans, that's the problem. We're meant to utilize carbohydrates in the form of stored glycogen. And that can also be, I, I won't get, hold on. I won't get into the other part of that. It could be too confusing. Um, but remember that you want to utilize fat as your primary fuel source. That's what fat is intended for. But we block that. So the more carbohydrates you consume, the less or inability you have to actually use fat as fuel. It's a, again, vicious cycle. So I would watch and see what you're eating with lunch. Maybe add a little more fiber and some greens in there instead of uh, the carbohydrate source you're getting maybe in there. Um, avocado, get a good fat source in there. Be careful when you start stacking high-fat foods with high-carbohydrate foods, you actually go into a a rapid fat storage mode. So be careful because again, the carbohydrates block the utilization of you burning fat. So what it does, it turns around and makes you store it. Oh, body's very, very tricky, very smart. There's reasons for this. And again, I won't, I won't get into that. The other part is you may want to add some resistance training into your workout. Endurance athletes usually just do nothing but endurance. That's all they do. Well, with that, guess what? You're, you end up disproportionately in your muscle balance. Skinny arms, skinny chest, but you have good definition in your calves and legs. But that's it. And then you got a little gut on you. You need to do some resistance training. Incorporate that two to three times a week. You can do it through body weight, push-ups, sit-ups, dips, air squats, lunges. You know, go and lift some weights. Do some, you, uh, My rules. What do you do? Eat healthy, lift heavy things every once in a while. And get your heart rate up. It it really boils down to those three basic principles in health. So that would be my determination. And if you have more information, Darren, feel free you know to send it on. Uh, I may have missed something there, or if anyone else has a similar problem uh, with more detail. And with that, remember my books again are out. If you buy them, make sure to review them on Amazon. Amazon treats those things like gold. So if we don't get enough of those, you know, I guess we're not the popular kid on the block. But thanks again, guys. Take care.
1: Yeah, all of this stems from basic human biology. And if you go back and think in primal paleolithic terms, um, the human being did not evolve with an endless supply of carbohydrates and specifically simple sugars And certainly didn't in general have a large quantity of fat and sugar at the same time. And when humans did have this abundance, let's say it was a a, a stream full of fatty salmon at the same time that berries were available, uh, sugar and fat together do trigger an amazing response in our minds and and biochemically, and we, we gorge on it if we allow ourselves to. And at the you know at the dawning of humanity this was a good thing because we would put fat on to get through lean times same way a bear does almost the exact same way a bear does in that scenario and what happened is we through our ingenuity created such abundance that we could have these things that were seasonal luxuries at our fingertips 365 days a year and much like a person could be exposed to some sort of a drug and then experience some sort of euphoric effects from that drug and not have a problem if they only had very limited access to it, like it was something that was a social thing once a week or something like that. If they have unfettered access to it, they can very quickly become an addict, even in a a substance that's not generally seen as highly addictive as a drug. And, And the truth is sugar, specifically refined sugar, is a drug, and when you add fat to refined sugar, you increase the addiction and the total capacity for consumption. And that's the weird thing. You can take a – think about it like have you ever ate a meal and been so full and you left a piece of steak and maybe a little bit of something else on your plate. And you're thinking, I can't eat another bite, but someone brings out a piece of cheesecake. Then we'll all have a bite and eat the whole thing. But if you tried to eat more meat, you, you would be like, I'm done. Or vegetables, I'm done. And the body has an ability to consume more in the form of high-fat, high-sugar combined, and specifically high-sugar, and then the fat just turbocharged it. So the way to break addiction is cold turkey, okay? That's how you break addiction, and that's why keto, paleolithic, primal, all of these diets work because they cause a cold turkey addiction by their very nature or a cold turkey uh, halting of consumption of this addiction uh, by their very nature. Anyway, let's take another one. This one is on podcast hosting with Nicole Sauce.
4: Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from the road on my way to New York City taking an expert counsel question from John about podcasting and websites. But because I'm driving, I can't read it to you. Luckily, we have Mama Sauce here. Trip! John asks, My question is for Nicole Sauce. I want to make a website. If I use WordPress.com, will I be able to upload my podcasts to such a website? My partner and I have completed about 10 podcasts. We have another 20 that are done, but need to be edited or stitched together. If we make a premium website on WordPress, will we be able to upload podcasts? Will we only be able to upload podcasts up to the 13 gigabyte limit? Will we have an RSS feed to upload to podcast sites such as iTunes? Any suggestions would be much appreciated. Thanks, John. Well, John, good on you. You've got a few podcast episodes recorded. You're ready to go. You're looking at building your website and... This is something where Jack's advice and my advice are probably very different because when he started his website, he was hosting his audio files. And I can't remember the episode number, and I can't look it up right now because I'm driving, where he went through all about how he hosted his audio files for the Survival Podcast. I do it differently. What I do is I use a third-party audio... Uh, Server And the one I use is Libsyn. They're by no means, you know, best or worst. They work for me, and I read their terms of use very carefully before I chose them, and their terms of use matched what I was wanting to see for my podcast long term. However, there's some caveats here. First of all, regarding the RSS feed, WordPress has a built-in RSS feed that you can use, but it will be all of your posts. So if you are doing blog posts and podcasts and other things using categories, all of that will go into your RSS feed. There are some plugins you can download to create category-specific RSS feeds, but... um, I haven't had to use one, so I'm not sure which one's the best. I can ask around if you end up going that direction. Regarding your question about storage space, yes, anytime you store a file on your server, it's, it's part of your limit and most hosting agreements also have like a throughput cap, how much you can how much data you can use a month. And so uh, one of the reasons I do not host my audio files on my server is, A, my server is optimized for a WordPress website, not for audio files. And second, it would use up a whole bunch of my bandwidth, which would cost me money, wherein at Libsyn, I'm paid 15 bucks a month. However, there is a word of caution and this relates to people being able to find your stuff and, and search engine optimization and that sort of thing. When you use a third party service, you will get an RSS feed from them. That's the one I use to apply at Stitcher and other places. But my service also has built in syndication to a whole bunch of podcast networks like pod, you know, uh, not Stitcher. I had to do Stitcher separately. But iTunes, super easy to get that done. I had to go through a, a review time with iTunes and apply there. But then it was all done. And every time I upload a show, it optimizes. It has a special iTunes area where I put in my special iTunes description. And it just all happens as if by magic. So that's why I like it. And then also I'm only paying 15 bucks a month the there is no storage limit there is a monthly storage amount so I have a certain amount I can put up there per month and if I need more I just increase my monthly contract and when I post an episode rather than publishing to their blog that they want to set up for my podcast which I don't want to do because then that just drives traffic to their site right I put down there's a little check box that i say that says you know where do you want us when somebody listens to this podcast and wants to you know go to the show notes where do they go and i put the link to the post on my website there so i have a custom link rather than saying the show's blog page because if it goes to the show's blog page then that's actually driving everybody back, Betty back to libsyn and my model is to drive people to my website so that they can find other episodes, maybe buy something, maybe become a member, that sort of thing. So my goal is to capture those relationships directly for the long term. So that I mean that's how I like to handle audio. It's the same with video. If you're gonna stream video, you're gonna stream it from your server or are you gonna find a video specific server like Vimeo or YouTube? I know YouTube's on the poop list right now, but you know, they, those servers are optimized for what they're doing. So I really prefer to use a third party in this case. Now, as my show grows, I'm probably going to be singing a different tune. And I do have to say, like, I am a categories different number of listeners than Mr. Jack Spearco. And he, I believe, is hosting all of his files on an uber-awesome mega server, and that works for him. And as he has access to those files, and that's a very good thing. So, you know, as you grow, you may want to have that growth plan in place. But really, to get started and to get started quickly using a third party, making sure that your link goes back to your website and not to the blog page they want to set up for you on their website – very easy way to get started and then you have a whole bunch of syndication built in on any of these pod- podcast specific servers anyway john i hope that helps you get your podcast started you should totally send me a link to what that is once you have it out there i'll check it out and as i said we're on a road trip so thanks for making this road trip entertaining road trip well Isn't that special? So we're back from the road trip now, and I tried to transfer this to Jack in a way that did not work. So I fumbled the ball on getting him this file in time for him to play it before John already answered some of his own question and submitted to me an update. So, John, I left the beginning of the answer because the question you asked me was not exactly the question I answered. I was trying to lead you towards a hosting situation that would work for you. But in the interim, he has played with a system uh, that is a free podcast hosting site that's, I think it's podcast.com. I went over there and I looked at their legal terms because here's, here's what he asked. We started the podcast and let's see, they're looking blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they put it on podcast.com and they're like, this is too good to be true. They host it for free. They get it on iTunes and that's awesome. Are we missing something? And the answer is yes. You're missing a couple things. One, I didn't see a way and I could be wrong because I also did not sign up, but I went through their system trying to find a way to post my show notes in their system and have it just give me a link to put on my site and drive everybody who wants to see it to this to my site. And so what you're doing is you're giving them traffic and that's fine. If you want to give them traffic, but again, I like to drive people to my site. And then secondly, I, I read they're legal. And usually when you get things for free on the Internet, you are trading something for that anyway. It's not exactly free. And they seem to have fairly simple uh, legal parameters around you still owning your podcast, but they are on their system. And they do say if you get past a certain amount of bandwidth every month, we will reach out to you directly and work out user fees. So it's not free forever. It's just free until you're successful. And then that means you have to build it. And I have no idea what their fees are at that point. That, but the two things I worry about with their system is that they will then claim ownership of your intellectual property. Uh, and then also they will eventually charge you money. And then also in the interim, John has put his site on Squarespace and he's wondering if we continue using Squarespace, how expandable is it? If we want to use more than just an information portal between us and our listeners, we would like to add some items for monetization and we want to be able to put, you know, giveaways. So anyway, he's asking is Squarespace, the right choice. And you guys all know what I think about Squarespace, right? Squarespace works to get your stuff up quickly and it works if you're not a web developer and I hate it. And here's why I hate it. The way they monetize is every time you want to do something they charge you an, an additional monthly fee. So at first you kind of get this free site, then it's 2 bucks a month, then it's 10 bucks a month if you want to have a bunch of stuff in your shopping cart, it's 20 bucks a month and it just keeps going up and up and up wherein Where When you set up a WordPress site, you're able to add those things with plugins as you go. So I can't, John, I can't tell you if Squarespace is the right choice for you. I can tell you if your podcast grows over time, you will probably eventually leave Squarespace to something else. I mean, having a site up is better than having no site. I just really like to get things like this built on something that's more flexible. and I don't find Squarespace to be all that. Flexible, So uh, it it works well for a lot of people who don't have a lot of variable needs and it's designed to do that and it's built to have very tight parameters so that you are not messing up other people's sites on the same server, basically. So I don't know if that makes sense or not, John. Uh, I would take another look at podcast.com. Make sure you can feed that back to your site and you're driving traffic to your site and not their site. Because I think in order to grow your brand, you want to drive people to your brand. It's kind of like we all became dependent on Facebook. And there are people who only exist on Facebook right now who have just lost their butts because Facebook has changed some things. If you were smart and had a membership portal or a member support brigade that had people directly subscribe to your website, then it kind of hurts that Facebook changed their stuff because it's a great outreach tool, or it was. It still is, kind of. Um, but at the same time, your customer relationships are housed on your website. Right, Jack? Anyway, with that, if you want to know more about me, you can check out my site at livingfreeintennessee.com. And Jack, I look forward to your take on this one too, because I think you might have a different one than me. Anyway, guys, go out and make it a great week.
1: Uh, We'll talk about a few things where I differ with how I do things to Nicole here and and try to keep it really simple and and, and as to why. First of all, Lipson now has a whole array of services. There's a person you can call if you have a customer service problem. Uh, You can pay them, and they've been around a long time now, and they have a a track record and a history. When I began doing the Survival podcast, they didn't have any of that. All they really offered was free podcast hosting, um, and they offered, you know, they, they were monetization was by getting some level of advertising revenue. And, and that was it. And so when I made a decision about building this business, I decided from day one, even when I did my first crappy 15-minute episode, that it was going to be a business and run like a business. And that if I was going to serve a clientele and something went wrong with my service, that I better damn well be able to get in touch with somebody that will fix it for me. So I went with HostGator at the time, which was a pretty good host at the time, and I recommended them to a lot of people for a lot of years. And eventually I outgrew them, and I moved on to a dedicated server where I host all my own stuff at 100terabytes.com. And that way I control my content. And to me that's very important and my content can scale with my audience. I can add bandwidth. I can add a second box. I can do whatever I need to do. And it's expensive. Nicole's paying $15 a month for my two service uh, servers and failover and rewrite protection and everything else to make sure that if one crashes, the other one has all the data. I pay over $600 a month. But I'm running a full-time enterprise. So I have an enterprise-quality service because I'm serving well over 100,000, almost 200,000 listeners a day. And I intended to build it that way for me, so that's one thing. Now on the feed stuff, WordPress feeds work fine with iTunes and Stitcher and everything else. And the fact that everything will be in your feed, like your blog post about your dog or whatever, does not affect your podcasting feed at all without even being specific iTunes, Stitcher, all these podcast feeds are intelligent enough that they only grab the stuff that has an audio file attached to it. So unless there's an audio or a video file attached to it, it won't show up in the podcast. It'll be in the feed. So if you just look at, you know, slash feed off your WordPress blog, or if you use uh, Feed Burner, which I use, and you've burned a feed that pulls from there, um, then. If you pull the feed up, you'll see it. If somebody has a feed reader, they'll see it. But if they're using any kind of a podcast service, for instance, Stitcher or iTunes or what have you, it will look at a post and say, oh, there is no there's no media file there. I'll ignore that. So it's, it's, that's not a concern. But it's up to you what you do. I think the average person doing a hobby-level podcast is, is served fine by services like Libsyn. If you are going to dedicate your life to building a business centered around a podcast, then I think you should take control of that content 100%. It should be portable. It should be, and and, and again, if you are paying for hosting service, you better be able to make a phone call and get help if something's not working right. And as far as a service like Libsyn, you can use a podcast plugin on WordPress, and you simply give that plugin the location of the audio file, com slash whatever, blah, 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 and it all works on WordPress. In fact, even though I host my own content, my audio files are hosted on the domain survivalpodcast.net, and my website is at the thesurvivalpodcast.com. And all I do is go to the directory, survivalpodcast.net slash audio slash 2018 slash 518, right? And then episode, you know, 2222 for today. And I just copy that link and drop it into the podcasting plugin. That's it. And in WordPress, it's already so integrated that you can just basically link to that file. And WordPress will spit it out in the feed as an available audio file to any podcasting service. So, just those are some, you know, reasons and where we differ. Next, I have a question for Charles, the humble mechanic Sandville on tire rotation. What's up everybody? Hey, it's
5: Charles from
1: humblemechanic.com taking your
5: car related questions or Jack, you might say piking on your car related questions. Anyway, this one comes from Sean in Georgia and it's a great question about how often we should rotate our tires. The details are with car oil change intervals becoming longer, what do we do about rotating our tires? Sean's used to that 3000 mile oil change interval and he would just go ahead and get his tires rotated then as well. But it looks like now maybe his newer car has a 6000 mile interval and he wants to know, is it okay to wait that long to rotate the tires? Sean, this is awesome. And it's something that at the dealership, we were really fighting this exact same struggle as well. It used to be you'd bring your car in for a 5000 mile oil change. We would rotate the tires then. And then the next oil change on like the every 10,000, we would rotate the tires, but we would also balance them. And that was like the perfect amount of maintenance for tires to keep them in as good of a shape as you possibly could. So Sean, to specifically answer your question, 6,000 miles on a rotate is okay. In fact, if you go to Michelin's website, that's the mileage that they recommend. So you're good at 6,000. When VW switched from 5,000 mile oil changes to 10,000 mile oil changes, we were encouraging our customers to come in at 5,000 miles to let us rotate their tires, set the tire pressure, top off all their fluids, and do an inspection on their car just to make sure that if something was at the early stages of failure, we could catch it while it was maintenance before they had to make a repair. And that added, oh, $20 or so of worth of maintenance in between intervals and really wasn't that big of a hassle for most people. But that was something we adopted based on what tire manufacturers recommend. If you were to read the owner's book of a lot of the more modern VWs, they don't have a tire maintenance interval because they tell you to rely on what the tire manufacturer recommends. So I would agree with that if you have Michelins on your car go to your Michelin owner's book for your tires and follow their recommended interval or Continental or BF Goodrich or whatever Kumo brand you have. Follow what the tire manufacturers recommend. I think a good average is to rotate every 5,000, whether that's front to back or crisscross kind of depends on what kind of tires you have. If you have directional treaded tires, of course you don't want to cross them and have them going the wrong direction Or if you have, say, wider tires in the rear than in the front, that becomes even more problematic. You can really only go side to side, again, as long as you don't have a directional pattern on your tire. So we would do the rotate at 5, and then at 10,000 miles, it's worth getting your tires balanced as well. Just because you don't feel a vibration, say, in the steering wheel or maybe in the chassis of the car, doesn't mean that your tires are properly balanced. So you want to get that checked and have them rebalanced. Another thing you really want to consider, and most manufacturers of tires recommend this as well, is having your vehicle aligned once a year. Just because your car is not pulling doesn't mean that you don't have an alignment spec out. If you have your toe pointed way in or way out or your camber way in or way out, that's going to cause an abnormal tire wear, and unfortunately, once abnormal tire wear starts, you really can't do anything about it other than literally ride it out or replace the tires. We can set the alignment back to proper specifications, but the damage is already done to the tires. Something you'll also want to do is you'll also want to check the pressure of your tires and make sure that it's good. Despite how many people were really, really upset of the the nanny light right, of the tire pressure monitoring system, which... I think began to be required on all vehicles in roughly 2008. I can tell you that tires were wearing better and lasting longer, and more cars were coming in with the correct tire pressure than had ever come in before. And yes, it was frustrating sometimes as a technician to have to top off tires all day, but hey, that's what our job is, so we did it anyway. And not everyone has an air compressor at their house. I did find a really awesome battery-powered air compressor from milwaukee that jack i'll send you a link to it's on the m12 battery so it's a small battery fills up your tire quick has a gauge on it guys it's awesome i really recommend it this new vwr32 that i have doesn't have a spare tire so i keep that in my car just in case so sean if you follow that rotate every five balance every 10 alignment once a year checking your tire pressure you know every two weeks three weeks something like that odds are you're going to extend the life of those tires as much as you possibly can for some reason the importance of tires is almost played way way down guys remember that your entire vehicle is riding on four small little patches of contact between the road and the tire so everything your vehicle does acceleration braking steering relies on that tiny little contact patch to be correct and to be as good as it possibly can. Good tires on your vehicle are vital, vital, vital. You know, we spend hours and hours and hours researching what new iPhone to get and then Settle for the cheapest tires that they make for our car. So next time you're ready for some tires, guys, do a little bit of research. Websites like Tire Rack and Simple Tire, they do great comparisons and have a ton of information. I have went through like three sets of tires on that R32 that I mentioned just to find the right ones that fit the needs for the car, both an all-season tire and a summer performance tire I have now for two different sets of wheels. There is so much literally riding on those tires that uh, I wish people took it more seriously. In fact, isn't that one of like Michelin's campaigns or you got a lot riding on this or something like that. But it's very, very important to make sure that you have good quality tires. The pressure is good. The wear is good. The tread is good. Make sure you don't have any dry rotting. And of course, make sure that your car is aligned. Doing a tire rotation is super easy DIY thing at home as long as you have a jack and jack stands and all the required tools. But we only charge 20 bucks at the dealership. And I think for 20 bucks, every 5K, it's worth having someone put it up in the air, top off all your fluids, rotate your tires, and give your vehicle a good, thorough inspection to make sure that you don't have any problems that can be handled today as relatively affordable maintenance versus in 3,000, 4,000 miles where it could become a very serious repair. So great stuff, Sean. Guys, keep the car questions coming. I hope you guys have an awesome weekend,
1: and I will talk to you again next time. So we should rotate our tires every 6,000 miles. That mean I should rotate the tires on my truck about once every two years. Yeah. Anyway, uh, next I have a question for uh, Old Doc Bones on hyperurcemia, a.k.a. the gout. Hi, Joe Alton, M.D. here, also known
0: as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand videos, articles, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the author of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. Today's question for the expert council is from Steve in the South, who writes... Hey, I'm a 30-year-old male with hyperuricemia that just won't quit. My doctor has said it may not be diet-related because I drink close to 1.5 gallons of water a day. am on high-dose allopurinol and don't even let myself look at purines. Is there anything else I can do to keep this at bay? Pharmaceuticals don't cut it and herbal remedies like uva ursi are crazy expensive. Don't seem to have much of an effect either. Your thoughts would be appreciated. Steve, the suffix emia means contained in the blood. Hyperuricemia is a condition where there's an abnormally high level of uric acid contained in the blood. That level depends on the balance between the quantity of something called purines eaten in food, what the body makes itself through cell turnover, and the amount that makes it into the urine. The severity of hyperuricemia depends on a number of factors, genetics, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, thyroid and kidney problems, and certain medications play a part, as well as certain dietary choices involving a lot of red meat and alcohol. Some people simply produce too much uric acid or don't eliminate it well. If it's very high for long periods of time, it can be serious enough to lead to kidney failure gout is another condition that's caused by too much uric acid in the blood. In gout, inflammation of joints is caused by deposition of these uric acid crystals in the joint, leading to episodes of significant pain and swelling. And this illness is one that occurs primarily in men. A history of certain types of kidney stones may also be associated with periods of gout. If you have kidney stones, you may be at risk for gout, depending on the type of kidney stone you have. An attack of gout will appear as a warm, red, painful joint, maybe more than one. The pain is a throbbing kind of pain. It's often severe. Even laying a sheet over it, for example, might cause pain. Some people do get fever as well with it. The big toe is the most common place to get it, but knees and ankles may also be affected, and half of the sufferers have multiple episodes over time. After multiple episodes, permanent damage occurs and the joint loses its range of motion. Chronic sufferers often develop lumps that are composed of these uric acid crystals called TOPHI, T-O-P-H-I, and TOPHI are lumps below the skin, mostly around that joint. They drain a chalky-looking material from time to time. Specialized prescription drugs are available for gout, such as the one you take, allopurinol, and another one called colchicine. These won't be found in your standard medic storage, so stockpile these if you're prepping. Besides medicines, which apparently haven't helped you much, lifestyle and dietary changes may be helpful. Avoid alcohol, reduce how many uric acid elevating foods you eat. In case you don't know, these include liver, red meat, herring, sardines, anchovies, kidney, beans, not kidney beans, but kidney, beans, peas, mushrooms, asparagus, and cauliflower. Avoid fatty foods, but add foods that have vitamin C and eat more carbohydrates unless you have diabetes or other conditions that don't allow it. Some other things you might try besides uva ursi, although the hard data isn't there quite yet at least, for their effectiveness include apple cider vinegar, lemon juice, wheatgrass juice, cherries, baking soda, olive oil, dairy products, celery seed extract, these are some natural items or dietary supplements that might be helpful this is joe alden md that old dr bones wishing you the best of health in good times or bad thanks for listening hey besides getting a copy of our survival medicine handbook don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net that's store.doomandbloom.net you'll be glad you did Oh, by the way, the Member Support Brigade gets a discount on anything in the store. Also, experience the joy that you get from making an old man very happy, that's me, by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, YouTube at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, Facebook on our Doom and Bloom page, and subscribing to our website feed at doomandbloom.net. Thanks again.
1: So next up, I have a question for Paul Wheaton and Josiah Wallingford, and this is on rocket mass heaters and creating ovens and other things that function stack with rocket mass heaters. Paul, Joe, take it away.
6: Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permes.com. I'm here today with Josiah Wallingford. Uh, what's what's your website of the week?
7: ThriveThru.com. Thrive-thru.
6: So Permit Ethos is still there, right? Yeah.
7: Yeah, okay, all right.
6: And uh, we got that show uh, Permaculture Smackdown, where I just show up and talk, and you do all the hard work.
7: Yeah, yeah, yeah something yeah, like yeah, that.
6: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we annoy people in mass through video through the power of YouTube. And
7: we're gonna do it now. We got a question.
6: Oh right, and this is well, this is not for Permaculture Smackdown, but this is so Jack, you sent us this question. So one of your listeners had a question, and uh, Josiah,
7: will you read the question, please? Paul, I'm building an off grid cabin and want to heat and cook with a rocket mass heater. I like the walker stove design, but other than Matt's own videos, I haven't found any other people building one. Any advice or pros and cons of of this design? Additional details. I also want to construct a separate outdoor kitchen for summer cooking and food preservation. I'd like to stack functions and use the stove for cooking, canning, and burning wood chips for a smoker. Then I'd like to route the exhaust to heat an oven and run through a dehydrator. I'm attaching a diagram to help explain myself. I'm not sure if there is enough energy to power an oven. Have you attempted anything like this and have any ideas on how to make it work well, or will this just be a terrible idea?
6: (laughs) Oh, do I have things to say? (laughs) Okay. First of all, uh, Walker Stove Design, that's Matt Walker's stuff. And his stuff is all first rate. So anything Matt Walker. And and you're trying to say like, oh, are there any other people? And it's like, yeah, there are. There are gobs of other people. And um, most of the stuff that they put out is freak shows of flaming death with a, a coat of paint on it that says rocket something. And so uh, it's it's difficult to tell which stuff is garbage and which stuff is good. But Matt Walker stuff, universally good. Big faith in, in him. Um, he, in fact, his Walker cookstoves are all the rage right now. Not only does he make great videos, and he sells his plans, uh, which is a big step. A lot of people need those plans. Uh, uh, he was here for the 2014 Innovators event. Um, and if you look on our Betterwood Heat 4 DVD set, uh, there's the fourth DVD for a uh, DVD four is, uh, got Matt Walker doing two builds. One is a rocket smoker and butt warmer and the other is the ring of fire. So yeah, I'm very familiar with Matt Walker's stuff. Uh, let's see. Then you said something about, I haven't found any other people building one. Uh, there's lots, uh, uh, but stick to Matt, stick to stuff that's trusted and known to work. Um, let's see. Uh, Outside of Matt's build, we've had uh, the indoor rocket cook stove up at Cooper Cabin that was built in 2015, uh, and uh, it has an option for being able to heat a mass. So you've got like a a baffle where you could say, send the heat, the excess heat from the cook stove uh, straight out the chimney or route it through this mass uh, before sending out the chimney. Um, and then there was one uh, last fall where Peter Vandenberg was here, and he does a lot of experimenting with the rocket engines that are part of the rocket mass heaters, etc. So he came up with this entirely different design, which is just baffling us all. Uh, he called it the double shoebox engine. And he uh, put it up in Allerton Abbey, one of the cabins up here, uh, and uh, with a cooktop. And it also has an optional mass heater. So there are other people doing it. And a lot of it is happening here. we've got ex- lots of examples here of of a lot of this stuff right now, right right now working i mean you've been I mean, well the other thing is oh yeah, outdoor kitchen you mentioned outdoor kitchen, and it's funny you should say that because right now, all these people are coming here today as we record this um uh, they're gathering for the rocket kitchen workshop. it's a free event. people had to apply, and the best applicants were extended an, an invitation. Uh, but we had a skittable canning kitchen that we put together. It's on skids. It's got its roof. It's all ready to go. And uh, now we're going to fill it out with all the rocket kitchen goodies, uh, including a rocket oven, uh, rocket cooktops. Uh, but its you know focus is going to be on being a canning kitchen. Um, so let's see. You uh, made a comment about burning wood chips for a smoker. Look at uh, DVD four. That's where Matt's got. Uh, he's he's building this uh, rocket uh, smoker. And it's got a butt warmer on the side. Um, and so if, if nothing else, that'll give you a lot of guidance on how to build one of these things. Um, let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, route the exhaust to heat an oven. And so uh, then you're asking about whether or not that's you, – you, whether you can do an oven. Not only can you, but we did. Uh, Tim Barker built an oven that same time that Matt Walker was here. And it's also in that DVD. So get that four DVD set, Betterwood Heat. On DVD 4, you'll see the rocket oven build. You'll also see the rocket smoker build. But the big thing is, is everybody's just gone bonkers about that oven. And so uh, every time Tim Barker came back here, year after year, he made improvements on that, and we videoed it all. And in uh, about a week, maybe a week after you hear this, we're going to be launching a Kickstarter that's the Rocket Oven DVD. But before that, we uh, hope to be able to put several videos up on YouTube about Rocket Ovens. We have one video on YouTube now about Rocket Ovens. And by the time you hear this, there will probably be two more. So check YouTube for videos about Rocket Ovens. And again, most of the stuff you see on there is garbage. So you got to be looking to see who it's coming from. But the answer to your question is, is, yes, you can do it. And the amazing thing is, is that it uses a fraction of the wood of what you would use for a conventional wood cook stove or um, uh, all kinds of other techniques that people use. In, in fact, some of those rocket ovens that I saw were like, oh, you've got to be kidding. What a mess. And a cob oven is really cool in all ways, but it takes three hours and a mountain of wood to get up to temperature. And you just create this smoke signal that people can see for five miles away. So, um, we're trying to move away from the cob ovens and move towards rocket ovens. Uh, so let's see. We're going to, oh, the DVD that we're about to put out in the Kickstarter, extremely detailed build, extremely detailed information. Uh, Excellent. And we've come so far. In fact, the build is designed for people with low DIY skills. So uh, the rocket ovens that we have here now involved a lot of welding. Um, And so the one that's in the DVD required no welding whatsoever. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Run through a dehydrator. Oh, I really love this idea. Um, uh, There is at least one thread about using rocket oven or rocket mass heater-like stuff as a dehydrator. And I know we've done a bunch of dehydration stuff just using the rocket mass heaters in the middle of winter uh, we use it in fact speaking of dehydrating we use it to dry our clothes a lot <laughs> but um, uh, there I know there's at least one thread that I was asked to participate in because it was at Willie Smith's place so when it comes to permaculture, I think that uh, the king of permaculture might possibly be Willie Smiths the work he's doing is just out of this world amazing um. But uh, uh, anyway, there's a, there's a good thread there about basically using rocket mass heater technology um, as a dehydrator. So we've got lots of that kind of stuff. I really like the idea of, of building something like that here sometime soon. Uh, we do have a rocket kiln here, which effectively is not exactly a dehydrator, but it's like, you know, for your pottery-like stuff for a kiln. Although we are going to try to do some stuff with glass in it to melt glass. All right. Um, let's see. That's it. Oh, that's it. I got through it. I made it. Ta-da. A hey, great idea, by the way.
1: Yeah. Thanks for that question. That's a great question. Bye, Jack. Bye. So time for my question today. Uh, this comes from Michael. Michael says, aquaponics question for you, Jack. What are the criteria which determine whether a plant will grow best than an ebb and flow versus a wicking bed? Details. I've heard you make recommendations for which plants might do best in different media beds, but I haven't noticed a definite pattern, at least at my level of gardening knowledge. Here are some plants I'm going to be growing this year, so specific comments would be recommended if they're not addressed. Thanks. So I'm going to go through his plants and tell you where I think you would probably get the best results with each one. Uh, Tomatio, I think you would get fantastic results uh, from a wicking bed. I know you will because I have mine going ape shit right now. Um, in my wicking beds. I also think you would get incredible growth, faster growth, and faster fruiting from your ebb and flow bed, assuming your system's balanced. Um, Watermelon. Uh, I'm going to tend toward a wicking bed here. Sweet potato, definitely wicking bed, absolutely 100%. I've had incredible results with them, especially with tuber set. You're talking about a lot of displacement within an ebb and flow bed. That said, the ebb and flow bed is the place to pop slips in and make more and more and more and more sweet potato because they root like mania in the ebb and flow bed. Hot and sweet peppers, um, either. It doesn't really matter. Take your pick. They will do fantastic in both locations. You'll get a bit quicker growth in the ebb and flow bed. You'll get a stockier, somewhat healthier plant. In my experience so far in your wicking bed summer squash wicking bed tomatoes either or but they're one of the fantastic plants for ebb and flow beds tomatoes grow like nothing you've ever seen before in ebb and flow beds here's some other plants that seem to do really well in ebb and flow beds swiss chard swiss chard is amazing in ebb and flow beds um, cucumber Cucumber is almost like It's almost supernatural Like the growth you get And the production you get on cucumbers From ebb and flow beds Generally ebb and flow beds do good With anything that really likes a lot of moisture Obviously um, And things that grow without heavy feeding requirements So that you don't have to do anything unique Or specific for them And then greens And things like uh, chives Onions, garlic Shallow root vegetables Seem to do pretty well um, I always believe that root vegetables would not do that well in Evan Flowbed. Rob Bob from Rob Bob's, uh, farming in, on YouTube, uh, out of Australia has totally shown that to be false. He has grown, like, he called one grandma beetroot. It was this sugar beet that was like as big as like a friggin' your head that he grew, uh, there. He's, he, ginger he's done in ebb and flow beds and massive turmeric, uh, harvest out of Evan Flowbed's. So you can grow anything you want in either one. That said, like summer squash you asked about, I'm going to say wicking bed because it's a big plant. It takes up a lot of space. especially. If, and you really will do well if you can find some sort of vining variety. Like a, Instead of growing a bush zucchini, grow like a trombocino zucchini that vines. And then we can caress that over the edge of the wicking bed and leave lots of space in there. But bigger plants will generally do better in your wicking beds. Um, the, here's, the, here's the deal. You can grow anything in a wicking bed, and it will do well. Some things do really good in ebb and flow beds, and some things probably don't do as well, or they take up so much space you don't want to give up that space in your ebb and flow bed. But I haven't found anything that won't grow in an ebb and flow bed yet. I have beans going bonkers in my ebb and flow bed, and it was actually a really good thing to do. I put some Scarlet Runner beans into one of my ebb and flow beds. And it let me explain to people that yes, you know, beneficial bacterial relationships do occur in ebb and flow beds, even though I know you don't think they do. And we know that because we pull one of the bean plants out, and the, the roots are covered in little pinkish white nodules of nitrogen that only form if that bean is having a symbiotic relationship with the rhizomial bacteria that actually. Fixed nitrogen. So we know that bacteria. And I didn't inoculate those beans. It's just in there. It got there on its own. So I I think there is you know, kind of one of those things like the best thing for you to do is to put something in. If you're not sure about pepper plants, put one in the wicking bed. Put one in your ebb and flow bed and look how they grow in your system. I will say this. If you start growing plants like peppers in ebb and flow beds. If you have a deficiency in nutrient in your ebb and flow bed, the pepper will show it to you quickly. Your pepper leaves will start to turn kind of yellowy, they'll get chlorosis, they won't be happy... And you'll know that you need more fish, and maybe you need to put some compost tea or put some compost in a bag and make a giant tea bag and let it sit in your water tank or something like that. Uh, if you have an iron deficiency, a is going to show it to you much more quickly than other plants they are kind of a canary in the coal mine. Comfrey will do that as well. Um, but here's the beautiful thing. Let's say you put your pepper plant in your ebb and flow bed. You put a tomato plant in it, You put a cucumber plant. It, you throw some, some greens in there and everything's doing really well, and you look at your pepper plant and your tomatillo plant that you put in your ebb and flow bed, and they're starting to get yellowy leaves, pull them out, stick them in a wicking bed. They'll come right out. That's the beauty of it. Even with a big root system, if you're gentle and careful, you can pull that root system right out of that ebb and flow bed, and tuck it into a wicking bed or tuck it in the ground somewhere else. Another thing you can do, and people don't realize this is you know, something that's okay to do and it will work, is get a hold of some good quality granulated organic fertilizer. And you can certainly get a better result with this than a wicking bed in the soil. But you can scatter that right on the surface of your ebb and flow bed. That should stay relatively dry. Your ebb and flow bed water should not come up to where you can see water. It should get moist up there kind of from underneath. With a little bit of wicking action through the lava rock, the pebbles, the expanded shell, whatever it is that you cap your beds with. And so just little bits of moisture will grab on and matriculate that nutrient down through that bed with each cycle and feed your plants. Another thing I haven't actually put out a video on yet or anything yet because I'm still playing with it but I found a bottle of some tablets that were for feeding water lilies. And I bought this when I had put some water lilies in my pond and they didn't even grow, so I never really used them. And they're made to be used in aquatic systems. They're made to feed plants that are heavy feeders. They're fish safe because they're used in fish ponds, and they're an organic product. So I have some water celery in an ebb and flow bed in a very large system that will never balance. And I'm seeing what can you grow in an ebb and flow bed that is never going to be the kind that we're looking for. And it, it, apparently water celery is not it. The, the water celery in that bed is kind of um, yellowy. And I've just popped in a few tablets right at the top of the root crown. And I'm going to let those dissolve and maybe pop a couple more and see if that turns them around. So there are ways to fertilize an ebb and flow bed and, and and correct for some of that. And these tablets have some iron in them, which is the, the number one deficiency you will experience in your ebb and flow and deep water systems of aquaponics, which is why a lot of things that don't require iron or require very little iron do well in those systems while others may not. Peppers need really need some iron. Tomatoes could use some. Um, cucumber doesn't seem to really care. So... That's kind of another way to make a determination is, you know, what has higher nutrient requirements will generally do better in a wicking bed. But again, just pop a few plants into each, give it a shot, see how it works. One more thing you mentioned in your email, some of the stuff you're doing from seed. In ebb and flow beds, if you cap them with expanded shale, nice soft expanded shale, about two to three inches of that, And you just take your finger and make a little hole down in there and put seed into that expanded shale. It will start and grow fantastic from seed in an ebb and flow bed. I don't know why, but that does not seem to be the case in general if you just throw seed into lava rock. Some of it will grow, some of it won't. I get that. But it doesn't seem to really thrive. But when it's in that little capped expanded shale... It does really, really well. I can't tell you about the clay pebbles because I, I don't use those. Anyway, that brings us to the end of another show. I want to remind you guys that you can help support this show a couple different ways. One is to become a member of the MSB. And I got a sale for you today that I think is kind of funny. So you can get the MSB for the next week for $25 a year and $25 renewals, which is half off. And I'm doing it kind of a little bit out of spite. We have this dude on the uh, the Facebook the TSP Facebook forum named Travis and Travis is a vegan and he 's the kind of vegan that you 'll know he 's a vegan because he 's going to tell you that he 's a vegan immediately he 's also a socialist and he 's going to tell you he 's a socialist immediately. imagine that um, and he never really violated the terms of the group explicitly enough to get banned. Though I've thought about banning him from the group several times, as other moderators have, because his only existence, his only purpose in the group is to stir shit. He literally never posts anything, either comment or original post, That's thought provoking It's all very trollish It should be my way And his most recent post was about the non-aggression principle Fair enough But his take as a vegan is the non-aggression principle Should apply to cows and pigs and chickens And stuff like that And we're all horrible uh, Violators of the non-aggression principle if we eat meat And it went into a whole troll thing With a meme or and everything else And I was like you know what I'm about tired of this I'm going to ban the guy And I thought about what John Willis told me one time From SOE uh, Special Operations Gear he said, you know, when he, when, I gets a, when he gets a hater, he uses their name as a discount. He does a sale. <laughs> and I thought, you know what, we'll, we'll kind of do that here. So the discount code is bacon. Bacon. Bacon, you get half off MSB and half off renewals. But here's the catch. You have to agree, on your honor, that over the next week you will eat an extra pound of bacon. That means a pound more than you would have otherwise. And that you will give a gift of bacon to at least one person in your life to so a friend, a family member, whatever you'll give it and it could be a bacon bit chocolate bar, I don't care what, but just just for Travis. That you will, in his honor, eat an extra pound of bacon, and you will give away bacon and spread the bacon addiction. I also have made an exception. If you, before religious reasons, cannot consume a pork product, you may eat the meat of your choice. I just found out they make lamb bacon. I'm highly suggestion suggesting that everybody check out lamb bacon. I know that it will appear in a future episode of Built On For Breakfast. It looks amazing. So thank you, Travis, for informing me that people chop up little baby lambs and make bacon out of them because I'm going to put some lamb bacon in my belly that otherwise I wouldn't have eaten. But bacon is the discount code. You can only do this if you're a new member or if you're an existing member with an expired account because you can't renew online early, but you can go to the members page And you can renew early if you do it manually by U.S. mail. So there is that option to you as well. And if you want to do it by mail and you want to pay for two or three years in advance, you can do that too. When Dorothy sets you up, she'll just give you as many years and we'll cancel your auto-renew. Just fill the form out completely so we know you have an existing account. And that way we'll make sure you don't get rebuilt by PayPal or Stripe. All right, so in the honor of Travis the Socialist Vegan, bacon, half off the MSB There you go. The other way you can help support us is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. tspaz.com is a little website within the website that is the Survival Podcast. And at tspaz, you'll see all the things that I've reviewed on Amazon. Remember, if it's there, I own it, I use it, what have you. And as long as you shop through tspaz, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do. Uh, The product of the day today is a little bitty product. It's about 6 bucks, and it's it's, uh, toenail clippers made by a company called Tweezerman. And you might wonder why I would have toenail clippers as item today. day. First of all, I, I think that like grooming is important to your health and to your survival and to your hygiene and things like that. So trimming your nails is actually important. It actually is a prepper thing and we should have the equipment to do that, and extras in case they're lost, two is one, one is none, in case we end up in some sort of long-term thing, and you have, like, you know, gross figure, I mean, come on, you know, uh, they break and you can get injured, all kinds of reasons to worry about this. The other thing is they're a good outdoorsman's tool. I have a set of uh, uh these these clippers in all my tackle boxes and stuff like that. Um So I, I think that it's a good item. The other thing, though, is, like, it's one of those things that people don't even think about, and you end up buying garbage for, like, $2.50 instead of 6 bucks and getting something good. But then the other thing is, I don't know about you, I lose three things more than anything else. Tape measures, Sharpie markers, and nail clippers. And I don't know if little gnomes steal them or what, but I want a good product, but I don't want to spend 20 bucks on something that I know sooner than later I'm going to lose. This is the best product I've found for my needs. Check them out. You might like them too. And, I mean, I have actually had nail clippers physically break by buying junk. And I don't believe in junk even with something known steel. Check it out at TSPAS.com. Tweezerman Professional Stainless Steel Toenail Clippers item of the day. And if you're a fisherman and you don't have nail clippers in your fishing kit, you're missing out, man. It is the one of the most useful tools for tying up rigs and stuff like that. And again, you can help us out always just by shopping at TSPAS.com. That brings us to our song of the day for a Friday. This is one of my favorite songs of all time, period by the Eagles. It's called Peaceful Easy Feeling. But I never knew the genesis of this one, and I think you'll enjoy hearing about it. So I'm going to tell you about it. This is from songfacts.com. A San Diego singer-songwriter named Jack Temchin wrote this song around 1969. One night at a nightclub in nearby El Centro, he waited around to hook up with a waitress, but she left and never came back. With no ride home, he crashed on the floor of the club but couldn't sleep To kill some time He grabbed his guitar And started composing the song Writing lyrics on the back Of one of his flyers He finished the song in stages And made his way to Los Angeles Where he hung out at the Troubadour Along with Glenn Frey Jackson Brown G.J. Souther And various other up-and-comers In the West Coast music scene He was staying with Brown one day And Frey came over And heard Temption playing the song Temption made a cassette recording for Frey who came back the next day with a demo he had worked up with his band that had been backing Linda Ronstadt. The band would soon become The Eagles. Peaceful Easy Feeling was included on The Eagles' debut album and released as the third single. tension went on to write Already Gone for The Eagles and helped Frey write his solo hit, hit You Belong to the City. The flyer tension used to start writing lyrics is now in the Grammy Museum. Thanks to its title and easygoing vibe, this song evokes a state of tranquility. The lyric, however, is about a girl. With Glenn Frey singing about how he loves, he he his he's love his love for things he'd love they they spelled it wrong he'd love for things to work out with her, but thinks she'll probably leave in the end. He'll be okay though, since he has a peaceful, easy feeling. And he won't let her ruin it no matter what happens. Because he's already standing on the ground. You know, this Friday I have friends coming over this evening that we're going to have dinner with and mix some drinks for. And uh, tomorrow my buddy David's coming over. We're going to film another round of Bill Tong for breakfast. And uh, we have fish tacos and ceviche coming up for the next episode of that. All of that, along with a Friday afternoon, gives me a peaceful, easy feeling. I hope you have one, too. Prepping can make you feel peaceful and easy because you're not worried about what if something goes wrong. With that, hope you enjoy your Friday and your weekend. This has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life? Times get tough, or even if they don't. I like the way sparkling.
0: Against your skin so brown And I want to sleep with you in the desert tonight With the billion stars all around Cause I got a
7: peaceful for.
0: I you.